Good evening and welcome to this meeting of the Aristotelian Society. It's very nice to welcome David Barnett, who got his PhD from NYU in 2003 and has been Professor of Philosophy at the University of Colorado, Colorado Boulder since 2005. His main interests are in the philosophy of language and metaphysics. He's published a number of papers on counterfactuals, vagueness, and the necessity of origin. I should perhaps point out in the leading philosophy journals, including Mind and the Full Review. His current work focuses on defending the suppositional theory of conditionals, to which this evening's paper, Counterfactual Entailment, is a contribution. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, thanks for having me. My presentation is called Counterfactual Entailment by David Barnett. <laughs> so, a counterfactual is a statement. Can you hear me when I walk away or no? <clears throat> I'll try to stay put. A counterfactual is a statement not about how things actually are, but about how things would have been if the world had been different in some respect. So in 1974, Philippe Petit and a bunch of his friends snuck up to the rooftops of the World Trade Center and they uh, attached a 200 kilogram cable from one rooftop to the other secretly and then Philippe went out on the cable and he walked back and forth about seven times. He laid down, lied down on the cable. He jumped up and down a few times. He was 104 stories above a paved sidewalk. He had absolutely no safety gear. And he was out there for 70 minutes before members of the New York City Police Department uh, opened fire. <laughs> All right. So that's not true. Some of you have, have probably seen the documentary. They did not open fire, but they did arrest him. They threatened to bring in a helicopter, actually, and pull him off of the cable. And when he heard about the threat, he came off the cable because he didn't want the helicopter to blow him off the cable. So the question arises, what would have happened if Philippe had fallen? And I'm highly confident that if Philippe had fallen, he would have died. And yet I don't believe that his having fallen entails that he would have died. All right, there are any number of metaphysically possible scenarios in which Philippe had fallen and survived. So it's metaphysically possible for him to have fallen and a perfect gust of wind to have brought him just gently to a safe landing. It's also metaphysically possible that if he had fallen, a bed of feathers uh, had magically appeared right beneath him just as he was about to hit the ground, bringing him again to a safe landing. So now I ask you, to raise your hand if you're at least 90% confident that if Philippe had fallen, he would have died. Is that everybody? Is that a raise? <laughs> or scratch your ear. So that's everybody. All right. Obviously, his having fallen doesn't entail that he would have died. And so it appears that the truth of a counterfactual does not require the entailment of the consequent by the antecedent. So it would appear that we have a counterexample to the following principle that I call counterfactual entailment. It says that a counterfactual is true if and only if 
its antecedent entails its consequent. So what do I mean by entails? Something like metaphysically requires, in the way that being made of water entails being made of H2O. Uh, my being here right now entails being such that 2 plus 2 equals 4. And my being here right now does not entail uh, you're enjoying the talk, so it does make it highly likely. <laughs> so that's what I mean by entails. And on standard theories of counterfactuals, uh, an entailment of the consequent by the antecedent is sufficient for the truth of a counterfactual, but it's not necessary. And so standard theories respect this initial appearance of counterexamples to this principle. By the way, which are rampant, right? It's really easy to come up with apparent counterexamples to this principle. Examples of counterfactuals in which we place a high degree of confidence, even though the antecedents clearly don't entail the consequence. So what I'm going to do today is give an argument for counterfactual entailment, and then I'm going to explain away the apparent counterexamples to counterfactual entailment. So I'll start with the argument. We're all familiar with the practice of making and evaluating subjunctive claims in the context of subjunctive suppositions. So for illustration, suppose that Philippe had fallen. In this context, we might claim that Philippe would have died. Or we might claim that it would have been a sad day. Or we might claim that Philippe wouldn't have been arrested. And then we might evaluate those claims as true or probable or indeterminate. So the question arises, under what conditions is it objectively correct to evaluate a subjunctive claim as true in the context of a subjunctive supposition? So I think the answer to this question provides the materials for an argument for counterfactual entailment. So that's where I'm going to start. Here's our question to start with. We'll start off supposing that A had been the case. In that context, we'll consider a claim uh, that C would have been the case. And we want to know, under what conditions is it objectively correct to evaluate this claim as true? So that's the question I want to start with. By the way, sometimes when somebody asks you to suppose that something had been the case, they also want you to suppose that everything else had been as similar as possible to actual. This is not one of those cases. So when I ask you to suppose that something had been the case, that's all I'm asking you. I'm not asking you to suppose anything more or anything less. All right, so under what conditions uh, is too true? In my experience, I found that it's easiest for people to identify these conditions, not directly, but indirectly, by first considering an equivalent question. So the question is, under what conditions is a bet placed on to a winning bet? So instead of asking under what conditions is two true, we just ask, you know, under what conditions does a bet on two qualify as a winning bet? This is purely for psychological reasons. For some reason, I found that it's easiest for people to identify the conditions first in terms of winning bets, and then going back and applying the answer to the case of truth. They're equivalent, the two questions. You might think right from the start, by the way, well, this is weird. He's already playing tricks on us uh, because it's very strange 
or maybe uh, impermissible to make a bet on a subjunctive claim in the context of a subjunctive supposition. But that's not the case. It's not generally impermissible. There may be something a bit weird about it, typically, and we can talk about that uh, near the end of my presentation. Just to show you there's nothing uh, in principle wrong with this. Uh, let's think of an example where it's okay. So suppose that the, the number of planets had been greater than the number of people in this room right now who think I'm crazy. So that's our supposition. Now I'll make a bet in that context. I'll bet you that number would have been greater than seven. Right? So there I made a bet on a subjunctive claim in the context of a subjunctive supposition, and it's a perfectly legitimate bet. Uh, I'll bet you that number would have been greater than seven had the number of planets been the same as the number of people in this room right now who think I'm crazy. All right, so there's nothing in, in principle wrong with talking about betting on subjunctive claims made in the context of subjunctive suppositions. All right, so coming back to our original example, suppose that Philippe had fallen. In this context, we want to consider the claim that he would have died and I would like to bet that he would have survived. So is anybody here willing to bet me one pound? Or do you guys say quid? One quid. You don't say quid? Where's quid from? It's old-fashioned. Well, I'm an old-fashioned kind of guy. By the way, my girlfriend and I love the way you guys talk. It's a lot more fun than the way we talk. Would anyone like to bet me one pound that he would, you get to bet that he would have died? I'll bet that he would have survived. We can't proceed until someone bets me, so somebody has to bet me. Thank you, I think you were first. Liz? Lucy. Lucy. All right, so we're on. Lucy bets that uh, Philippe would have died. I'll take that bet for a pound. I bet that he would have survived. Now the question arises, what does it take uh, for Lucy's bet to qualify as a winning bet? All right, to answer this question, let's... Consider the general question of what it takes for a bet to qualify as a winning bet. So in general, a bet that S qualifies as a winning bet just in case what you bet on is true. So that seems quite right, but it's not going to help us because I deliberately moved away from truth to talk about winning bets because I find it easier for people to think in these terms at first. So I want to give a, an equivalent but slightly different explanation or a different answer to this question under what conditions is a bet a winning bet? And to see what I have in mind, imagine that Nancy and Betty have a disagreement over whether any hamsters have blue eyes. Betty is highly confident that some hamsters have blue eyes, and Nancy is adamant that no hamsters have blue eyes. So they bet 100 pounds. Betty bets that some hamsters have blue eyes. Nancy bets that no hamsters have blue eyes. They break up. They go and do some research, and then Betty returns to Nancy and says, Nancy, give me my money. And Nancy says, excuse me. Betty says, well, I've done some research on the physiology of hamsters. And what I've found about the physiology of their eyes in particular is that it's extremely likely that some of them have blue eyes. Just look at these physiology books. So she's, sorry. She comes back and she says, look, 
it's highly likely, in fact, these physiological facts settle that it's highly likely that some hamsters have blue eyes. And Nancy, of course, replies by saying, well, unfortunately for you, we didn't bet on whether it's highly likely that uh, some hamsters have blue eyes. We bet on whether some hamsters have blue eyes. What you need to do to show that you, you, your bet is a winning bet is bring me some facts that settle not just that it's highly likely that some hamsters have blue eyes, but that some hamsters have some blue eyes. So it's not enough to win a bet uh, that there be certain facts that settle that it's highly likely that what you've bet on is the case. Rather, for a bet that has to be a winning bet, it must be settled that S. What do I mean by settled? Nothing epistemic here. Uh, I mean something metaphysical in the sense that my hair situation settles that I'm bald, right? It makes it the case that I'm bald. It metaphysically requires that I'm bald. Uh, so it must be settled or metaphysically guaranteed that S uh, for S to be a winning bet. So that's what we'll go, we'll go with right now. Okay, so let's apply this answer to a case of a subjunctive claim made in the context of a subjunctive supposition. Sorry, a bet on a subjunctive claim made in the context, context of a subjunctive supposition. So I was hoping that Dorothy would be here today. And I want you to suppose that an urn, say an hour ago, had just magically popped into existence containing 99 red balls and one black ball. And suppose furthermore that Dorothy had randomly drawn from that urn. Okay, easy enough. Now I want to bet somebody on what would have happened. I'll bet that she would have drawn black. Why? Because I like a long shot. So somebody in here will take the opposite bet, the bet that she would have drawn red. So who wants to bet me? Lucy already bet. You were going to bet earlier, so will you take this bet? Yep. Thank you. All right. What's your name? Chris. Chris. So Chris has bet that Dorothy would have drawn red. I bet that she wouldn't have drawn red or that she would have drawn black on this supposition. And now we want to know, what does it take for Chris's bet to qualify as a winning bet? Well, you can imagine, just like in the Betty and Nancy case, that Chris comes to me and he says, well, I've been thinking about this, and I'm ready for you to give me my money. And I say, why? He says, well, I've been thinking about this scenario here, and it seems to me that there's 99 times more scenarios in which Dorothy draws red than in which she draws black. So it's 99 times more likely that she would have drawn red. So give me my money. And I say, well, unfortunately, Chris, we didn't bet on how likely it is that Dorothy would have drawn red. We bet on whether she would have drawn red. And so for you to establish that you have a winning bet, you need to bring me some facts which settle, not just that it's highly likely that she would have drawn red, precisely 99% likely in this case. I already knew that before I made the bet. That's why I made the bet. I like a long shot. You need to bring me some facts which settle whether she would have drawn red, and in fact settle that she would have drawn red. So in this case, again, we want to know under what conditions is red a, a, a winning bet, and again, it's obviously not enough that something, some facts, settle that it's highly likely 
that Dorothy would have drawn red. Rather, it's a winning bet just in case something settles that Dorothy would have drawn red. And again, by settling, I don't mean anything epistemic. I mean something metaphysical. All right, so that's the right answer. Okay, so returning to our original question about Philippe and my bet with Lucy. Here, we suppose that Philippe had fallen, and in this context, Lucy bet me that Philippe would have died. I bet that he would have survived. We want to know under what conditions is Lucy's bet a winning bet? Well, again, you can imagine Lucy going off and doing some research, quite a bit of research, and coming back to me and saying, hey, I'm sorry, but I need my pound. And I say, well, why do you say that? She says, well, I looked into the situation. It turns out on that day in 1974, the wind conditions were completely normal. There was no gust of wind, some strange gust of wind waiting around the corner of the building to bring Philippe to a gentle landing. I also did some research and found that there were no leprechauns or magical people around waiting to cast a spell to bring some feathers into existence just as Filippo was reaching the ground. In fact, I did quite a bit of research into the laws of gravity, into Filippo's weight, you know, many of the particulars on that day. And so what I found is that these facts make it extremely likely that Philippe would have died. So she gives me all the facts that settle that it's highly likely that Philippe would have died. And I respond by saying, well, unfortunately, we didn't bet on whether it's highly likely that Philippe would have died. I knew all along that it was highly likely that Philippe would have died. That's why I took the bet. I like a long shot. What's needed for you to win your bet is for something to settle, not just that it's highly likely that Philippe would have died, but that Philippe would have, I'm sorry, Philippe would have died. So that's not enough for your bet to be a winning bet. Rather, what's needed is that something settle that Philippe would have died. And by settle, I don't have anything epistemic in mind. What I mean by settle is metaphysically guarantee or metaphysically require in the way that my hair situation settles that I'm bald. All right. So the question arises whether... Anything other than the supposition could settle that Philippe would have died. So we agree that the supposition alone doesn't do it. We agree that Philippe's having fallen does not entail that Philippe would have died. It doesn't settle that he would have died. Do you have a question? Yeah. It, had he hit the ground, he would have died? That's, like, that's very likely. He could have died from a heart attack, though, on his way down. Or he could have hit a bird. <laughs> or somebody could have shot him while he was falling. But probably, that's true. Okay, so uh, the question arises, could anything but the supposition itself uh, settle that Philippe would have died? So could facts about particular facts about that day, contingent facts concerning the situation that day, the wind conditions, just the sorts of facts that Lucy investigated, could those facts, perhaps combined with the laws of nature, settle that Philippe would have died? 
settle whether he would have died by virtue of settling that he would have died, and thus making it the case that Lucy's bet is a winning bet? Well, the answer to that question is no. And to see that the answer to that question is no, let's suppose, as we already believe, that the supposition does not entail that he would have died. So we already believe that, just suppose it's the case. The supposition doesn't entail that Philippe would have died. His having fallen does not metaphysically require his dying. In other words, it's metaphysically possible for him to have fallen without dying. In other words, supposing he had fallen, it's metaphysically possible for him to have survived. In other words, supposing he had fallen, it's not metaphysically required that he died. In other words, supposing he had fallen, nothing metaphysically requires that he died. So, supposing the antecedent doesn't metaphysically require that he would have died, nothing metaphysically requires that he would have died. Okay? The only thing that can metaphysically require that he would have died, in other words, that could settle that he would have died, is the antecedent. So, under what conditions is D a winning bet? Well, it's a winning bet just in case something settles that he would have died. In other words, something makes it the case metaphysically, something metaphysically requires that he would have died. But I just argued the only thing that can do that is the supposition, is having fallen. Having, having fallen. And so under what conditions is this a winning bet? If and only if what's supposed entails that he would have died. Okay, so that was the crucial argument. Uh, that was the key part of my argument. So what I'm going to do is just go over it again explicitly step by step so you know there's no hocus pocus or magic here. A lot of people got upset at me at University of Colorado when I gave this. They thought I was doing magic. Uh, there's no magic here. It's just a few trivial claims strung together to come to a conclusion that most of you are trained not to believe in philosophy. Okay, so here it is, step by step. Step one. Suppose, as we already believe, that Philippe's having fallen does not entail that Philippe would have died. So why are we doing this? We want to know if anything other than his having fallen could settle this question, right? Could settle that he would have died, or settle whether he would have died by virtue of settling that he would have died. That's why we're asking this question, and this argument is going to lead to the conclusion, no, nothing else can do it. If it's not the supposition, it's nothing. Okay, so supposing that Philippe's having fallen does not entail that he would have died, then it's metaphysically possible for Philippe to have fallen without dying. It's just a rephrasal. Okay, so now we'll move from this rephrasal to another rephrasal. From it's metaphysically possible for Philippe to have fallen without dying, we can rephrase again to on the supposition that he had fallen, it's metaphysically possible uh, that he would have survived, that he had not died. So that's just another rephrasal. On the supposition that Philippe had fallen, it's metaphysically possible that he would not have died. So let me turn to another rephrasal. From on the supposition that Philippe had fallen, it's metaphysically possible that he would not have died, we can move to 
on the supposition that he had fallen, it's not metaphysically required or guaranteed that he would have died. That too is just a trivial, maybe slightly more than a rephrasal, but looks trivially equivalent. So now, let's move from that. On the supposition that Philippe had fallen, it's not metaphysically guaranteed that he would have died, to, on the supposition that he had fallen, nothing metaphysically guarantees or requires that he would have died. And basically, we're done here. What can we conclude? We can conclude that something metaphysically guarantees that Philippe would have died only if his having fallen, having fallen does it. Only if his having fallen entails that he would have died. It's the only way for something to guarantee that he would have died. So that's the only way for Lucy's bet to be a winning bet. Okay. So we're just one step away from the conclusion of my argument, which is counterfactual entailment, that principle at the beginning. So what's the step? Let's see where we are, and then I'll take that extra step. Here's where we are. I ask you to suppose that Philippe had fallen. In that context, I made a bet with Lucy over whether Philippe would have died. Lucy bet that Philippe would have died, and now I've argued that her bet is a winning bet only if the antecedent, sorry, if what's supposed entails that Philippe would have died. So that's what I've done so far. First, I said in general, a bet's a winning bet just in case something settles what's bet on. And by settles, I mean something metaphysical, not something epistemic. So, I mean, something metaphysically guarantees, metaphysically requires, makes it the case that Philippe would have died. And then I gave an argument that that happens only if F entails D. Okay. So this qualifies as a winning bet only if what's supposed entails what you bet on. Of course it's a winning bet just in case what you bet on qualifies as true. All right, those are equivalents. So now I'm going to step back and just apply our answer here in terms of truth. All right. If you bet that Philippe would have died, your bet's a winning bet just in case it's true that Philippe would have died. Whoop. Sorry, that was too quick. I just switched from winning bet. This is my answer to the question under what conditions is a winning bet, and then I just substituted truth up here because those are equivalent. So I'm bringing us back to our original question here slowly. I've given an argument. This doesn't rest, of course, on any particulars of this case. I've given an argument that a subjunctive claim made in the context of a subjunctive supposition qualifies as true only if, if and only if, because clearly it's true if it's entailed, if and only if what's supposed entails it. Okay, so one more step to counterfactual entailment. Here's the step. So far I've been talking about subjunctive claims made relative to subjunctive suppositions. Well, now consider the following three utterances. First, somebody says, suppose that Philippe had fallen, and then they say, he would have died. 
Somebody else says, well, supposing that Philippe had fallen, he would have died. And a third person comes along and says, actually, if Philippe had fallen, he would have died. All right. I maintain that only an insane person would evaluate the second sentence of one in, in one way, ascribing truth or falsity to the second sentence of one, and then go on to evaluate two or three with a different truth value. Right? Whatever truth value you assign to two or three, you better assign the same truth value to the second sentence of one. Something you're not getting it, you're missing something about English if you if you say, well, it's false that he would have died, but it's true that if he had fallen, he would have died. That's weird. Very weird. Okay. So the conditions under which the second sentence of one qualifies true are the same as the conditions under which three qualifies as true. But we know what those conditions are. The second sentence of one qualifies as true, just in case what's supposed entails it. Well, that means three is true just in case the antecedent entails the consequent. Hence, counterfactual entailment. A counterfactual is true if and only if its antecedent entails its consequent. Now, at Colorado, when everybody got upset at me, I took a break here and I said, this isn't magic, this is magic. And then I brought in a beheading machine, which would be more fitting here in London. And I cut someone's head off from the audience and the lights went out. And I had an assistant. So you'll just have to imagine that. That would be magic, but this isn't. I got a tour of the Tower of London two days ago. It's very interesting. You guys like to cut people's heads off often, which is a good time to say, don't get emotional about this. <laughs> Seriously, about a month ago, I gave a talk with, I gave three different arguments for a suppositional view, which I haven't even mentioned yet. Three different arguments from today. People got very emotional. You'd be surprised how emotional people get about this word if. Uh, one woman stood out of her chair and screamed at me for seven or eight minutes. Well, I just stood here. She was swinging her hand at me yelling about the word if. It's very personal. So try not to take this personally today. All right, that's the end of my argument. What I want to do now is explain to you what's going on here, why it is that it appears that there are all sorts of easy counterexamples to this principle, and so something must be wrong with this argument. What's going on? Well, at the beginning of my presentation, I said to you, look, I'm highly confident that if Philippe had fallen, he would have died. And then I inferred, I said, I also said clearly his having fallen doesn't entail that he would have died. And here's the inference I made. I said, hence, the truth of a counterfactual does not require an entailment of the consequent by its antecedent. That right there was the mistake, the hence. So I'm going to go into a bit of the explanation of why that's a bad inference. But what's going on is that we're rationally justified in having high degrees of confidence in all sorts of counterfactuals whose antecedents do not, obviously do not entail their consequence. That's okay. It's okay to be extremely confident in these counterfactuals. What's not okay is to infer that these counterfactuals are true. In other words, what's not okay is to transfer that confidence to an ascription of truth 
to the counterfactuals. And so I wish Luke, is Luke Bovins here and he just looks really different? Does he come to these things? Do you guys know who Luke Bovins is? Anyone? Yeah, I know Luke. Uh, Luke was a teacher of mine. Really, have any of you heard of Luke Bovins? This is going to hurt his feelings if none of you has. He's at London School of Economics, and he was a teacher of mine as an undergrad. He taught one of the first classes I ever took in philosophy, a metaphysics course, and we spent some time on counterfactuals. And he would say to us, he'd give us example after example of counterfactuals, and he'd survey us each time. So he'd say, if Nixon had pressed the button, uh, Uh, there would have been a nuclear holocaust. So that wasn't his original example, but he was using examples from the literature. And then he'd say to the students, true or false? And I wouldn't raise my hand. He'd say, Barnett, why aren't you raising your hand? And I'd say, well, probably there would have been a nuclear holocaust. And he'd say, no, no, no. He'd say, true or false? I'd say, but I don't, I don't feel comfortable saying true or false. He'd say, and he'd get really mad at me. He'd say, that's not the game, probably or not probably. The game is true or false. He, He'd hold my head underwater in a toilet for a while until I had to say true or false, until I was trained, like we all are, to say true, right? Even though I didn't want to say it. I wanted to say probably. And it actually puzzled me for a few years. So that was, as I was when I was an undergrad. But for a couple years, as I went on to grad school, I was puzzled as to why I was willing to say probable or probably, but I wasn't willing to say true. Because I wasn't that way with other ordinary statements. With ordinary statements, like if, if he had asked me, is, is the grass green? I would say, yeah, the grass is green. Right? Even though I wasn't absolutely certain. Right? I only thought it was highly likely the grass is green. But that was enough for me to say, it's true that the grass is green. I was willing to just go ahead and say true. But with counterfactuals, I, was, I felt that comfortable saying it's highly likely that there would have been a nuclear holocaust. But I was not comfortable saying true took me years to figure out what was going on here. So this is what's going on, I think. Why it is that I didn't want to make that inference. Okay, so here it is. The explanation of why there appear to be counterexamples, even though there aren't. So consider an ordinary non-conditional, non-subjunctive statement. Here's a statement that some hamsters have blue eyes. Betty goes and do, does some research, and she's at least 80% confident that some hamsters have blue eyes. Now we ask the question, how confident should she be that it's true that some hamsters have blue eyes? The obvious answer is 80%. If she's rational and she has the concept of truth, she will transfer this confidence in the statement to an ascription of truth to the statement. And that's rational in this case. So that's an ordinary, non-conditional, non-subjunctive claim. But now consider a subjunctive claim that's made in the context of a subjunctive supposition. So let's return to the case of Dorothy, and we're supposing that she had drawn randomly from an urn containing 99 red balls and one black ball. The statement we want to consider is that she would have drawn red. And now we want to see what's the relationship between our degrees of confidence in this and uh, ascriptions of truth to this. So I think we all believe it's 99% likely that Dorothy would have drawn red. Oh, oh, phew, it didn't turn. Okay, so I want to point out what it is we commit to by ascribing this likelihood to this claim in the context of this subjunctive supposition. What we commit to is not an absolute ascription of probability. 
So when you say it's 99% likely that Dorothy would have drawn red, you don't commit to the idea that there's this thing that Dorothy would have drawn red and it's absolute, it has this absolute probability of 99%. Clearly what you're committing to is a relationship between what's supposed and what you're evaluating. And the relationship's obvious. You're committing to the idea that what's supposed makes it 99% likely that she would have drawn red. So her having drawn randomly from such an urn, that's one thing, what we're supposing makes this thing that you're evaluating 99% likely. But you don't say all that, you just describe 99% likelihood in the context of this supposition. What you commit to is a relationship between the two in that context. So that's fairly special. That's not what goes on when you say it's 80% likely that uh, hamsters have blue eyes. There you're just, it's not a conditional, at least on its face, it's not any sort of conditional probability, you're just ascribing a certain probability to this claim. All right, what happens though when you evaluate this as true? When you say it's true that Dorothy would have drawn red, again, you're not committing to the idea that the object of your evaluation, the subjunctive claim, is absolutely true. It doesn't even make sense, right? This thing that Dorothy would have drawn red, it doesn't make sense to consider that apart from uh, some supposition or another supposition. It has to be considered relative to a supposition. So it doesn't make sense to say it's true, just absolutely, not relative to one supposition or another. And so again, when you evaluate the idea that Dorothy would have drawn red as true relative to this uh, supposition, what you commit to is a relationship between the supposition and what you're evaluating. And I just gave an argument as to what that relationship is. It's entailment. You're committing to the idea that what's supposed entails that she would have drawn red. In other words, it makes it true that she would have drawn red. Just like when you say it's 99% likely, you commit to the idea that the supposition makes it 99% likely. Here, you're committing to the idea that the supposition makes it true that she would have drawn red. Okay, well, obviously, one thing can make another 99% likely without making it true, without entailing it. That's clearly possible. And so, is it rational to transfer your confidence in this claim? Whoop. Suppose you're 99% confident that Dorothy would have drawn red, as I am. Is it rational for you to transfer that confidence to an ascription of truth to that claim? Should we just slide that down? Well, no, those are very different commitments. When you ascribe 99% confidence, all you're committing to is the idea that what's supposed makes what you're confident in 99% likely. You can commit to that without committing to the idea that what's supposed entails what you're saying is 99% likely or makes true. And so you do not want to transfer, or at least in general, it's not rational to transfer this confidence from a subjunctive claim to an ascription of truth in that claim. And that's just the mistake I'm claiming we're making. Uh, it's just the mistake I deliberately made at the beginning of this presentation when I said, when I made that inference and I said, look, I'm highly confident, as all of you are, you all raised your hand. We're all highly confident that if Philippe had fallen, he would have died. It's obvious that the antecedent doesn't entail the consequent. Hence, the truth, there was the inference right there. Hence, the truth of a counterfactual does not require an entailment from the antecedent to the consequent. So this is the mistake. What we're doing, I think, naturally, and we're trained to do this in philosophy, Luke Bovins tried to train me, but I refused. Uh, we're trained to think in terms of truth. I don't know historically what's going on here, but philosophers love to talk about truth conditions. 
So they insist on asking for the conditions of truth and they don't like anything but that. And so I think we're making this, uh, this inference that we shouldn't be making. In fact, I'm 0% confident that it's true that Dorothy would have drawn red. I'm also 0% confident that it's false. And yet I'm 99% confident that she would have drawn red. After all, it's 99% likely that she would have drawn red. And there's nothing irrational about these combinations of stances that I'm taking. Okay. So, this is the first time I'm explicitly mentioning the suppositional view of counterfactuals. I owe a lot to Dorothy, actually, for drawing my attention to this idea through uh, some of her articles, including her paper on conditionals in mind. Excellent paper. Uh, so, what's the suppositional view of conditionals, of if-then statements? It's the view that if-then statements are essentially amalgams of two different, uh, two different speech acts. It's essentially an amalgam of a statement and a supposition. You cannot treat them as anything but that. So you can't treat them as a categorical statement of something. Uh, a conditional statement is essentially a statement of its consequent made relative to the supposition of its antecedent. On the standard view of conditionals, conditionals can be treated as categorical statements of something. And then the debate from there is the debate over what it is that's being categorically stated. So Stallnaker says what's being categorically stated is that uh, the consequent is true in the nearest antecedent world. And for counterfactuals, Lewis says uh, what's being categorically stated is that there exists an antecedent and consequent world It's closer to the actual world than any antecedent and not consequent world. I think I got that right. Uh, so, and Goodman gives a different account. So people are arguing over what it is that's categorically stated by an if-then, whether it's indicative or subjunctive. The suppositional view rejects that that presupposition that there is anything categorically stated. Instead, it says that to state that if A, then C, is to do two things, essentially. It's to express the supposition that A, and then to state that C relative to this supposition. By the way, I've heard it suggested several times that this view is, is consistent with the categorical view, that you can say both things. And Stallnaker and sometimes Lewis write that way. So they move back and forth between suppositional talk and categorical talk as if there's no tension between the two. But that's false. You cannot, well, it's not false that they do it. It's false that, that, uh, that the suppositional view is consistent with the categorical view. They make all sorts of incompatible predictions, these two views, which is why it's so fun actually to work on this. There's so many predictions they make that are different, uh, that diverge, that there's a lot of good tests uh, they make inconsistent predictions, the two views. All right. So basically, this view tells us that an if-then statement behaves just as uh, a subjunctive claim made in the context of a subjunctive supposition behaves. And we've already given an explanation for why it's not rational to transfer a high degree of confidence in a subjunctive claim that's made in the context of a subjunctive supposition to an ascription of truth 
to that claim. So we've already talked about why that's irrational. On this view, that's exactly what you're doing when you're considering an if-then statement. You're considering, sorry, a, a counterfactual if-then statement or a subjunctive. You are considering a subjunctive statement in the context of a relative to a subjunctive supposition. These need not be statements, by the way. You might be doing this in your mind, so I'm talking in terms of statements, but we could talk in terms of ideas instead. In your mind, you suppose one thing, and then relative to that, uh, you ascribe a certain degree of confidence in another thing. So it's a conditional degree of confidence. All right. So putting what we've already learned towards uh, if-then statements explicitly, start off ascribing 99% likelihood to this claim, the claim that if Philippe had fallen, he would have died. And now on the suppositional view of conditionals, what you commit to when you ascribe 99% likelihood to this is something about the relationship between two things. You're not committing to an absolute description of likelihood. On the categorical view, by contrast, the standard view of counterfactuals, when you ascribe 99% likelihood to a conditional, there's this thing that's categorically stated by the conditional, and you're ascribing 99% likelihood to that thing. There is no such thing on the suppositional view. There's two things. You're evaluating one in the context of the other, and so when you say it's 99% likely that, Philippe, that if Philippe had fallen, he would have died, what you commit to is the idea that the antecedent makes it 99% likely uh, that he would have died. By contrast, when you ascribe truth to this conditional, I'm not sure if this is by contrast, but similarly, I, I guess it's better to say, similarly, when you ascribe truth to this conditional, uh, you're not committing to the idea that there's some one thing uh, which is absolutely true. Rather, you're committing to the idea that something is true relative to a certain supposition. In other words, something makes something else true. What is it? The antecedent makes the consequent true. So when you ascribe truth to a counterfactual conditional, what you commit to is an entailment uh, of the consequent by the antecedent. Clearly, the antecedent can make the consequent 99% likely without entailing it. And so you don't want to transfer your confidence in a counterfactual conditional to an ascription of truth to that counterfactual conditional. That would be a mistake. So... Start off 99% confident that if Philippe had fallen, he would have died. Should we transfer that confidence to an ascription of truth? I've argued no. That would be the mistake. But this is what's going on, I think. This is why there appear to be all sorts of counterexamples to counterfactual entailment. It's that we're rationally justified in holding high degrees of confidence in all sorts of counterfactuals and also asserting these counterfactuals. So on the surface... Uh, I won't say that. Let's just say uh, we're rationally justifying being highly confident in all sorts of counterfactual conditionals whose antecedents don't entail their consequence. Uh, it doesn't follow, though, that we should be that confident that these counterfactual conditionals are true. That's a mistake. In fact, I'm 0% confident that it's true that if Philippe had fallen, he would have died. Why? Well, I gave an argument for that in addition to just my instincts from that undergraduate course. Now, today, I've actually given an argument to back that up and an explanation of why 
with counterfactual conditionals, my degrees of confidence come apart from my descriptions of truth. Okay, so I'm 99% confident that if he had fallen, he would have died. However, I'm 0% confident that it's true. Okay, so here's a summary of the explanation, and then I'm finished. First, we are justifiably confident in all sorts of counterfactual conditionals whose antecedents obviously do not entail their consequence. Second, we mistakenly transfer this confidence to ascriptions of truth to the same counterfactual conditionals. Third, this mistake is fairly excusable, I'll say, because the transfer, well, because of our training, unfortunately, and also because this transfer is valid in the case of ordinary categorical statements. So typically, that's the right thing to do, is transfer your ascription of confidence in a bare statement to an ascription of confidence uh, in an ascription of truth to that statement. So typically that's rational, but not in this case. So I will excuse the mistake. And finally, my conclusion is that counterfactual entailment is a true principle whose apparent counterexamples should be explained away by appeal to the suppositional view of counterfactuals. Thank you.